From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy needs more frigates faster to reach new goals for a larger fleet, according to National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. He was in Marinette, Wisconsin, at the Fincantieri shipyard that builds littoral combat ships Monday. Breaking defense reports it's the second major fleet change O'Brien's proposed in the past week. He's also suggested adding hypersonic missiles to Navy destroyers. A new partnership with Texas A&M University will help the department develop hypersonics faster. The Pentagon will pay the university's engineering experiment station $20 million a year for five years to start and run the university consortium for applied hypersonics. Defense News reports the consortium includes academia, industry, and the military. The new Army G6 calls talent his biggest challenge as he takes over the office the Army separated from the Chief Information Officer's office. Lieutenant General John Morrison says cloud, data, and cyber expertise are at the top of his want list. NextGov reports Morrison says he'll rewrite some job descriptions so they fit the split G6 CIO environment better. The most expensive weapon system ever has hit another delay. The F-35 program won't move to full rate production until next year. That delay is separate, though, from a big change to the software that controls the airplane. Valerie Encina is air warfare reporter for Defense News. Val, welcome back. It's great to see you again. You have a couple stories up, as I mentioned, about the F-35. What is full rate production? What does that term mean? And why is that or would it be an important milestone for the program? So low rate production is when, you know, a company is still learning how to manufacture something. They're still training their workforce. And so they do smaller numbers of production. And so when you move to full rate, you've kind of learned what you can learn. The program is mature. And this is really where a company is going to start making money. So it's, it's a big kind of symbolic milestone for, for Lockheed. What's the holdup or what do we know about what the holdup is that's preventing uh, the company from moving to full rate production? So the Defense Department has to kind of rubber stamp, you guys are ready for full rate production. And in order to get to that point, uh, the F-35 has to finish operational tests. And in order to get to that point, uh, something called the Joint Simulation Environment needs to be finished and the F-35 needs to go through tests in that environment. So the JSC is, think of it like a simulation of virtual world where the F-35 can take on advanced Chinese and Russian threats that you cannot emulate in the real world. You know, either because we don't have the numbers of aggressor planes or they're just too advanced of technologies or too classified for us to actually uh, you know, play out in a in a war game in the real world. So um, once the F-35 goes through that bout of training or that bout of testing, then the Pentagon can finally look at the whole program and decide whether or not to move it to full rate production. It's always and, uh, that 
hasn't happened yet. It's always reasonable to think in today's environment that COVID has something to do with everything. And you write in, in your report, it's unclear why the JSE te uh, test schedule has slipped again. In a January 30th report, the Pentagon's independent weapons tester said the program, quote, appeared to be on a path to provide a simulator for testing this summer. Is it significant that they're not saying that it was COVID or does that not mean much of anything potentially? I mean, you know, at this point, it's hard to know exactly what happened. Um, so, you know, last October, we learned that, you know, the JSE wasn't ready. So the full rate production decision was going to be delayed for a year. And at that point, the hope was that it was going to happen in March 2021. Um, <laughs> And now they're not really sure when in 2021 that's going to happen. Um, so, the, and that's because the JSC, you know, the F-35 is not going to start testing with that until sometime next year. And that was supposed to happen this year. So I think it makes sense to think that COVID might have something to do with that. You know, a lot of, a lot of bases that are doing operational tests right now, they had to, you know, kind of roll back the number of people that were going into work. Um, you know, a lot of the work on the JSE, you know, I would think pretty much all of it is going to be classified. So, you know, you really need people in work on those classified computers attached to the classified network in order to do that work. So to me, this sounds like something that is probably COVID related. The other item that you're writing about is the replacement of the Autonomic Logistic Information System, ALICE, that has been just terribly problematic. The noise that I heard while I read your report, I believe, was the cheering of F-35 pilots that this uh, ALICE system is going to be gone. What's replacing it and how will it work better, Val? Well, so the program that's going to be replacing it is called ODIN. And, you know, you, you basically have to think of ALICE as, you know, it touches kind of every part of the F-35, um, every, everything from training to mission planning, but most importantly, you know, the supply chain and maintenance of the aircraft. So, um, like looking forward to ODIN, you are looking at a product that was created, you know, in 2020 uh, with 2020 information technology. It's going to be cloud-based. It's going to be owned by the government. It's going to have applications, you know, like the like a smartphone, like you know the iPhone that um, every you know general likes to reference as the gold standard of usability. And and right now the problem with Alice is that you know it's based on very old technology from the early 2000s. So think of it more like a dial-up modem or you know your old school AOL. It just doing anything on Alice takes a long time. Uh, we have less than a minute left. Given the fact, Val, that people have termed the F-35 a flying piece of software, is it possible that changing out this system really is a turning point for this program finally? Yes, absolutely. And I think it, it's going to uh, make it easier to maintain the plane. It's going to make it easier to collect data on the plane that um, will, will, will allow the Defense Department to uh, use it more efficiently and effectively. And because maintainers are going to spend less time waiting around for software to update or to download, you know, data off of Alice, uh, planes are going to be more mission capable, meaning they can fly more. Valerie and Cinna, thanks very much. It's great to have you back.
Up next, the Defense Department's biggest wild card. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the top five list of challenges the next administration has to tackle. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The gap between what the Defense Department needs and what it can afford is likely to grow in coming years. The Center for Strategic and International Studies lists five challenges the department could be up against. Mark Kansian is senior advisor in the International Security Program at CSIS. Mark, you have four big challenges here and one wild card. Let's go through each of those individually. And the first one is striking to me because it seems to run counter to the national defense strategy, retaining capacity for regional conflicts, crisis response, and allied engagement, all of the things that others are saying the department maybe should get out of the business of doing, Mark. Absolutely. Every administration comes in vowing to prioritize uh, these day-to-day -day commitments so it, uh, they can reduce the stress on forces and maybe even cut forces. Uh, the current national security strategy does that, so there's a tension there. The problem is that administrations generally fail uh, in that effort because of the demands for, of a global uh, strategy and global engagement. For example, President Trump had to send forces to the Middle East uh, in response to Iranian attacks on uh, partner countries and maritime shipping. This means that you need a, enough force to cover all of these uh, commitments. Now you can have uh, a high-low mix. In other words, you can have high forces very capable forces to deal with great power conflict, but you can also have less capable forces to deal with regional contingencies and these kind of day-to-day -day crisis response. Having both of those at the same time, though, fits into challenge number two about which you write, which is a strategy resources gap. I alluded to that at the beginning of this conversation. We have to decide what we can afford as part of deciding what we're going to be able to do, correct? Absolutely. And every administration has some strategy resources gap. The problem is that strategists uh, like to make uh, commitments and have uh, global engagement, and that very often goes beyond what the resources will support. To the extent that there is a gap, uh, that increases risk, and it means that the United States is uh, essentially bluffing with military forces. This means that the United States has made commitments to allies that it uh, is not, uh, may not be able to uh, actually honor. The bluffing is part of the challenge in number three that you write about. I love how these all seem to interweave, Mark, uh, the need to shift more aggressively to a great power structure. We have to do that quickly. There's no question about that as we see the gains, especially regarding the Navy that China is making. Uh, what does that look like in your view? Absolutely. One of the criticisms of the national defense strategy is that it doesn't move more aggressively towards building these kinds of very uh, advanced capabilities needed to take on uh, Russia and particularly China. Uh, strategists would therefore cut forces very substantially uh, in order to fund these new systems. Uh, the Army would be uh, uh, particularly vulnerable here because the Western Pacific, of course, is mostly a maritime uh, and air uh, theater. Uh, and although the Army has a role, has a much uh, reduced role, so m many strategists would cut the Army uh, very su substantially. The fourth challenge that you write about is strategy changes that could change force structure. We always like to think that we know what's going on in the world and what's likely to happen in the future, and we never seem to get it right. How does one determine what force structure should look like given potential strategy changes that we don't see coming, Mark? Yes, and, and there are 
two issues uh, embedded here. I mean, one is our uh, the difficulty in foreseeing the future. Uh, Secretary Gates made the comment that the United States track record was perfect. We never anticipated uh, the conflicts that we ended up in. I think that's a little pessimistic, but uh, it also means that you need to hedge, and that uh, implies then that instead of developing a strategy that focuses on very tightly one particular kind of crisis, like a conflict with uh, China, the need to maintain a broad set of capabilities. There's another issue in there, too, which is uh, what's called a strategy of restraint. And you see that uh, um, with many libertarians and on the Democratic left. Uh, and the strategy of restraint would um, uh, argue the United States uh, is too involved in the world and that we should uh, pull back that the United States, uh, you know, this involvement uh, has many bad uh, effects. It's a coherent strategy because it says, all right, we're going to have a strategy that requires us to do less so we can make major cuts to uh, resources and forces, but it also is a um, strong break with uh, what's been happening for the last 70 years. If there's a Biden administration, they're going to have to uh, deal with this because there'll be a lot of pressure from the progressives in his party to implement something like this. The, the structure there will be interesting to watch, too, because Adam Smith, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, has already said quite clearly, I don't see any case for a 10 percent cut in defense budgets, which is what some of the folks in the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party have proposed. So that dynamic could be more interesting potentially in the next Congress than the Democratic-Republican uh, dynamic, in my view, Mark. Um, the wild card that you list here is the pandemic, the response to the pandemic and the impact that it's had. What about potential wild cards like that in the future? February of this year, we had no idea something like this could change our world as much as it did. And I wonder if that potential, if you think that potential exists to cause wrinkles again in the future. Absolutely. Uh, we have the wild card of the pandemic itself. And of course, many people argue that with the United States focusing on domestic issues and because of the great debt, defense resources may go down. There may be some push to include pandemics and domestic emergencies as one of DOD's core missions. Uh, and cut war fighting forces as a result. But as you say, the future is very uncertain and uh, the United States needs to be able to hedge against those kind, you know, this uncertainty. And I would argue the United States therefore needs to maintain a broad set of capabilities uh, in order to deal with whatever uh, comes about because uh, for certain, whatever something that's gonna happen in the next four years that no one ever thought about. Mark Kansian, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thanks for having me on the show. Up next, prepping for the national security needs of the future. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Pentagon's partners to avoid and end war. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Transition teams for both President Trump and Vice President Biden are working out of the General Services Administration to set up the next administration, no matter who wins next week. The Center for American Progress has new recommendations for international policy for the next administration. Katrina Mulligan's Managing Director for National Security and International Policy 
the Center for American Progress. Katrina, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You have five main recommendations here, and I want to talk about them in turn. But before we start looking at each one, you write, the next president and his national security team will need to prioritize among these pillars and align them with his domestic policy priorities. Do you think that process is objective or subjective, Katrina? Well, that's a, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, at this point, there are going to be some realities that the next administration isn't going to be able to um, deprioritize even if they want to. Um, but there's also going to be, you know, a certain amount of uh, personality-driven, priority-driven um, action that we would expect um, to be driven by what the candidate believes, what their vision is for U.S. foreign policy, um, America's role in the world. So I, I really think there's going to be some pieces of it that are affirmative and that really set the U.S. on a on a new uh, course. But there's also going to be a, an awful lot that the next um, administration inherits that it's not going to be able to um, to sort of shape or or avoid. Uh, thumbnail on each of these five pillars, if you will, please. And the first is rebuilding and modernizing our national security institutions. Is that is that needed primarily in your view because of internal or external uh, issues? I mean, that, too, is a little bit of both. Uh, you know, these, to be clear, before the Trump administration, these uh, institutions weren't in tip-top shape to begin with. There were a lot of modernizing that was needed um, and that, you know, was, was going to be necessary no matter what had happened. But obviously, the last four years has put our national security institutions into a, a critical um, kind of emergency state. And they've been really hollowed out by... The actions of the of the last uh, administration in the last four years, and so there's no question that we are going to have to um, rebuild. We're going to have to restore uh, trust with the federal workforce. We're going to have to um, restore as some sense of norms around the way that our our foreign policy institutions um, interact, and and it's going to be a long road. The second one uh, that you write about is living our democratic values at home and abroad and prioritizing the defense of those values. What's necessary for the next administration to do, uh, whether or not uh, the president's reelected or Vice President Biden is elected? I mean, step number one is going to be restoring uh, some of our democratic values and our commitment to our values at home. Um, we aren't going to be able to project uh, strength abroad um, and, you know, help to shape, uh, compete with China and, and uh, make sure that we retain uh, some semblance of a global international order if we don't at first at home get our arms around some of the abuses some you know what's happening at the southern border the way that we're treating immigrants um, you know the the way that we're um, restraining people's ability to vote um, so I think I think you know our our democratic values abroad are going to have to begin with a with a really honest look at our democratic values and the way that we live them at home the third pillar is ending the current wars responsibly and leading with diplomacy. This is a debate that's been ongoing for a couple of decades now. Bob Gates talked about it as soft power uh, leading with diplomacy rather than the military. What do you think the gap has been in the between the discussion of it and the execution of it? Unfortunately, the gap's been pretty large, and I think we do have, um, you know, a, a military-first uh, kind of foreign policy, and we have had that for some time. Um, to some extent, it's reflected. It reflects 
what we resource and and you know where we have our our best and and most ready capabilities and so we tend when you have them ready you tend to use them as a tool of first resort instead of a tool of last resort and that's what we've seen in our foreign policy over over a number of years um not just in the last four um but if we're going to end the wars and do so responsibly, we're gonna have to recognize that merely withdrawing our troops um, and, and leaving uh, conflict zones isn't in and of itself going to end those conflicts. Those conflicts can and will continue. And we've, we've actually tried doing that once before in Iraq and, and the consequences weren't, weren't great and aren't something that we wanna replicate. So we are going to have to um, really lean into our diplomatic capacity um, and rethink the way that we approach counterterrorism if we're going to, um, if we're going to really draw down in a way that doesn't come back to haunt us. A fourth pillar that you write about is recalibrating our global relationships and you cite allies, competitors and adversaries. How would you prioritize those three? I mean, number one, no question, is that we've got to restore our relationships with our allies because our ability to lock arms with our democratic allies and partners is essential to our ability to blunt the impact of the of China's rise and also to deal with some of the thorniest issues um, with our our adversaries, including Russia, but certainly not limited to Russia. Um, but we're also going to have to rethink some of our more toxic partnerships. Um, you know, relationships that to some degree have outgrown their usefulness to the United States and are also inconsistent with our values, relationships with places like Turkey and Saudi Arabia. The, f the fifth pillar, and we're almost out of time, Katrina, but the fifth pillar, tackling global challenges, and you cite climate change, arms control, corruption, and others. Um, how does one tackle that, uh, given the context of the other four that we've discussed? The first and foremost, most essential, we've got to put climate change at the center of our foreign policy, but we also are going to have to do that in the context of dealing with a lot of other thorny issues. It's actually one of the reasons why our foreign policy is going to be so essential going forward. Katrina Mulligan, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you. Glad to be here. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.